Turn to John chapter 5, if you would. We're still in John chapter 5. As you're turning there, um, I guess a little, little quiz here. And I think everyone knows this, but I'm, I'm going to ask the kids, what famous historical and tragic event happened 50 years ago this past Friday? Just the assassination of John F. Kennedy, um, our president. And I believe it was 1963, so that would be 50 50 years ago. Now, for the most part, after JFK was assassinated, there was a uh, a commission that investigated it, and they put together all the facts as best they could, and the determination was pretty clear that Lee Harvey Oswald had killed the president by himself from the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository, shooting the president, hitting him with a couple of shots that, that took the life of our president. Now, I remember when I was in college in 1991, there was a movie that came out. Maybe you guys saw this movie by a director named Oliver Stone. And this movie, through what everyone understood regarding JFK, kind of threw everyone for a loop. Because when I was growing up in history class, you just learned what was the facts that that Lee Harvey Oswald killed the president. And this movie came out and, um, and had all kinds of wild conspiracy theories mixed in to this movie, conspiracies that ranged from uh, the possibility that even our own government killed our, our own president. At the same time I watched that movie in 1991 in college, I was also reading a book uh, about Lee Harvey Oswald that also had a bunch of other crazy conspiracy theories woven into that book as well. Now before that movie came out, and you can find these stats somewhere, before that movie came out, like, like 80 to 90 percent of Americans believe that there was a lone gunman. It was the, the man who was caught and uh, later killed, Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, but after that movie came out, now only 30% of Americans believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman that killed our president. The crazy thing is, though, any serious historian, uh, any serious investigator will tell you there is no evidence for the conspiracy theories. Now, I don't want to offend any of you out there who are the conspiracy theorists. There may be some of you who just really buy into all that stuff, but there's no really good and solid evidence. Okay? It's quite a fanciful claim. It's, it's an audacious claim, actually, especially to, to think that our government was somehow involved in the killing of our own president or that there was some other sort of strange conspiracy. If you used to watch the X-Files, it was Smoking Man who killed the president from a gutter down on the ground there. I don't know if you've seen the X-Files or not, but there's all these crazy conspiracy theories. But there's no evidence to back up these audacious claims. Or else there would be a different conclusion that the investigators actually would have came to. Now again, if you totally are conspiracy theorists and you think I'm nuts, we can talk about that later. But the way I want to tie that to today's message, and the reason I'm using that as an illustration is that in today's text, or as we've seen in chapter 5 of John, that Jesus has made an audacious claim. That he is co-equal, distinct, yet co-equal to the Father. It is, as Peter pointed out last week, the elephant in the room, as he's talking to these Jewish leaders. It's quite an audacious claim. And unlike these crazy conspiracy theorists, who believe JFK was killed by something else or someone else or some conglomeration of people, unlike that which have no shred of true, genuine evidence, Jesus has plenty of evidence to show that he is who he claims to be. Matter of fact, that's what today's text is all about. Three witnesses or three testimonies are going to be put forth to show 
to demonstrate legally that Jesus is who he says he is. So please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John chapter 5, verse 31. This is a continuation, as you probably already know, or if you're visiting here, uh, of our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series, which is exactly what the title says it is. We want to see Christ more fully in the Gospels and savor those truths, which will in turn make us better worshipers. So this series is a chronological walk through the life of Christ using all four Gospels. So essentially, by the time we're done with this series, we will have preached through all the Gospels while harmonizing the parallel accounts. Uh, so if you're wondering, just in case you're wondering, my son asked me this morning, by my count, as I look at the way this is broken down, and, and I have a chart that has the Gospels broken down and harmonized, uh, we've got about 250 more messages in this series. So... Um, so Noah was right. He goes, I'm going to graduate before you finish the series. Said, Probably. So, um, but that's just the way it's working out. Now, we will take some breaks here or there and do some other series. But this is going to top our He Reigns series, which took us three and a half years to get through Acts. Uh, but I hope you're enjoying the series as we walk slowly through the life of Christ. So please stand, if you would, as we read John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 31. And we're not going to read the rest of the whole chapter uh, I was planning on getting all the way through the chapter today, but I'm not going to be able to. We're just going to read through verse 40. This is the inspired word of God. This is Jesus speaking directly, by the way. And so this is God speaking to us. John chapter 5, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that your word would go forward today, that it would not return void, that it would produce life, abundant life. And Lord, I pray there be none in here who refuse to listen to your word. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you a little bit of the context of this passage of Scripture. Jesus has returned to Judea after a lengthy time of ministry in Galilee. He's returned for an unspecified Jewish feast or festival. And as Peter pointed out last week, this is a, the festival cycle here in John where there's multiple festivals or feasts that Jesus is attending. But his ministry picks up in Judea, right where he had left off in Galilee, namely that Jesus is intentionally stirring up controversy on the Sabbath. He just chooses to heal a man on the Sabbath just like he had done previously up in um, Galilee. Jesus um, is there confronted by the Jewish leaders. He heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. 
The Jewish leaders totally miss the miracle that testified to his divinity. They get all worked up about the man carrying his mat. And they get worked up about Jesus actually doing this on the Sabbath. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, confronts them. John 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And then we read in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders, certainly understood what Jesus was doing. They understood that he was making this audacious claim. And so Jesus, is con- Jesus continues in verses 19 through 30 to explain his unity with the Father. These verses that Peter preached on last week and did a phenomenal job on last week. We saw in those verses that Jesus claimed to, to be doing the activity of the Father. He claimed to, be, to perfectly reflect the Father. He claimed to have an intimate union and love with the Father. He claimed to have been given the authority and judgment from the Father. And he claimed to be due the same honor, and that's huge. He claimed to be due the same honor, which means worship, that the Father was due. These were audacious things that Jesus was claiming. In essence, Jesus made the the audacious claim to be co-equal with God, distinct yet equal to God. And this claim was, as Peter said last week, the elephant in the room. This claim could get him killed. So Jesus now, as he speaks to these Jewish experts and teachers of the law, he shifts now in verse 31 to legal language in defense of his claims. John 5, 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. John loves to use this language of witness or testimony. He he does it over 40 times in the book of John. Jesus says here, my testimony is true. Not true. Now that may be confusing to some of us out there. But Jesus is not saying that he is speaking non-truths or lies. He's not saying that his words are false. Matter of fact, he says just the opposite in John chapter 8, verse 14. Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. So Jesus is not here contradicting himself. He's not saying that, that his words were false and later that they're true. He's simply saying that his testimony in and of itself is not valid in a legal sense. So to to help us understand it, it'd be like um, you guys get legal documents from time to time that you have to sign and date. And then there's another line a lot of times at the bottom of that document with another word beside it that says witness. You have to have someone else go and sign that document and witness that you've read it and you signed it and dated it and everything. If you took that legal document to um, whoever was requiring it and you signed the witness spot as well as the other spots, you signed you were your own witness, they wouldn't accept that legal document. That's not acceptable. It's not valid. You need another witness. So that's what Jesus is saying here. So a better translation might be, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not valid. And, And so perhaps some of your translations may even say that, meaning that it's not acceptable In a court of law. Any good legal system works that way. And for any claims like the one that Jesus is making, more witnesses were needed. So Jesus puts forth another. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now there's debate out there as to who this another one is. Who this other witness is. Some think it's John the Baptist whom we'll discuss in a minute. But I doubt it. 
In verse 33, we read of John's testimony as being past tense. For John's ministry had run its course. So he had borne witness about Christ. It was past tense. But here in verse 32, we read that the one who bears witness is present tense. I think this is referring to the Father. God the Father himself is bearing witness to the claims of Jesus. I think it fits with the context as Jesus has been referring to his co-equality and union with God the Father. And so the question is, how does God the Father bear witness to Jesus' claims? And we see in today's text that the Father himself witnessed to the validity of Jesus' claims in three ways. Number one, through the human ministry of John. And I'm referring to John the Baptist. Through the human ministry of John the Baptist. So if this were a courtroom... The first thing we see is that God the Father calls to the witness stand a man. A man named John the Baptist. The man that he had sent to prepare his people by testifying to and witnessing to who Jesus was and is. Verse 33. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. You sent to John. When he says that he's probably referring to John 1.19. And this is, and I'm going to read that for you. And this is the testimony, there's that word again, of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So Jesus here is appealing to what they've already done. They'd already asked and received John the Baptist's own testimony. John told them, as we continue to read in John chapter 1, I am not the Christ. He testified to the fact that he himself was not the Messiah. But not satisfied with that answer, they pressed him more. What do you say about yourself? He said, in verse 23 of John chapter 1, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Right there. Did did you catch what John said, what his testimony was? Make straight the way of the Lord, Yahweh. This is a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which is clearly referring to God. God himself was coming, and John was preparing the way. Had they listened to John, they would have known that John was promising that the one to come, the Messiah, would be God in the flesh. Exactly what Jesus was claiming. But John's testimony was even more than that. Verse 25 of chapter 1, then they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? It's like they couldn't even hear. (laughs) Sometimes people that that oppose the truth and you continue to have arguments with them, it's like they just don't hear. So he says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then we read in verse 29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He wasn't born before him, by the way, when he says he was before me. What's he saying? He's God. He's the Ancient of Days. He was before me. John goes on, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
John had already testified that Jesus was the one. You may remember back when we went through that passage of Scripture, I used an illustration of a, of a court case. It would be like you sitting in the room and they say, do you see the person here who committed the crime? And, and the person sitting in the witness stand, if you watch one of those dramatic dramas, uh, courtroom dramas, says, that's him. Now, Jesus didn't commit any crimes, but that's what John's doing. He's sitting in the witness stand and he's saying, behold, that's him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's him, the Lord God for whom the way is being prepared. He was saying, that's him, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. He's saying, that's him, this Messiah has come to be a sacrificial lamb, just as Isaiah 53 has already spoken of. But they hadn't heard John's testimony. Now, they did believe John was a prophet, at least most of the Jews did. I'm not sure if the leaders did, but most of the Jews believed he was a prophet. He was the first prophet to come on the scene for, for over 400 years. And his ministry was popular. We read in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that everyone was going out to, to be baptized. Verse 35, back in the passage we're reading today, chapter 5, verse 35 of, of John, says that he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The word rejoice means revel. They reveled in John's ministry, but were unwilling to see whom it was John was pointing to. It'd be, it'd be like, okay, the, the, the preview for The Hobbit has come out, right? And, and you see the previews, and what the preview is supposed to do is make you want to see the movie. It'd be silly to enjoy the preview and say, I don't want to see the movie. I want to see The Hobbit. I want to see it when it comes out. Because I've enjoyed seeing the previews, and it looks exciting. And so that's what the people were doing. John had come to preview. I'm pointing to something much greater than me. But they had seen the preview and failed to see what it was pointing to. At this time, John was more well-known than Jesus, more than likely. And the people were willing to enjoy John's ministry. And they got swept up in the excitement of a religious movement. But they totally missed what it was pointing to. Friends, that's the danger of emotionalism. People like religious thrills. But when the thrills are gone, oftentimes they bail. And we've seen that historically in all the great awakenings. Why did these awakenings not last? I'm not saying God didn't do a great move. He did. There were lots who came to the Lord during the, different, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the great awakenings that happened over in England and Wales. But there were many who got caught up in the thrill of the religious movement that then faded away once the thrill disappeared. People were thrilled by John's ministry, but they missed the aim of John's message. He was a burning and shining lamp, but lamps, friends, burn out. He was not the light, but was only a witness to the light. For he was only a man. And Jesus acknowledges such. Okay, he acknowledges that, this, that he was just a man. Verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Human witness... The witness of John was helpful, but it wasn't ultimate. There's a principle for us here, friends. Human testimony is good, but it's not ultimate. A lot of people today, when you ask them, why do you believe these things about Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? They will appeal to their own testimony as the witness. They may say something like, well, because I've experienced him. 
or he's changed my life, or because I walk with him, because he, he makes me feel a certain way, he gives me joy, he gives me peace. Friends, none of that's bad. Human testimony is not bad, it's just insufficient. It's insufficient. Your testimony of your experience of Jesus is fine and dandy, but God has given much better proofs and greater proofs, and he'll go on to talk about those things. I, I heard an interview recently that the White Horse Inn did. If you don't know what the White Horse Inn is, it's, it's, a, it's a radio a talk show that Michael Horton does <clears throat> out of Westminster Seminary in California. Um, and I listened to this. They, they went to a Christian conference, a conference, a a Christian conference, and began to ask people, what's more important when sharing the gospel? Your personal testimony or doctrine straight from the scriptures? Like 95% of the people said what? I'll let you guess. Your personal testimony. Friends, that is not the ultimate witness. Is it helpful? Yes, it can be helpful. But that is not sufficient. Jesus was now going to say that the Father has provided a greater, a weightier witness. Jesus was telling them that John's witness was good, and he was telling them that so that they would see who he was pointing to, and they would put their faith in Christ and be saved. But there was a more expert witness yet to be called to the stand. I had the opportunity once to serve on a jury, and I ended up being the foreman of this jury. And it was a jury related to a, an automobile accident case where this woman was claiming she was severely injured, more severely injured than her insurance company thought she was. And, and I remember them calling her to the stand. And then they called the police officer to the stand who was at the accident site. And he, he shared his testimony about how she looked. Well, she looked okay to me. And maybe she had some injuries here or there. But, but, and then they brought a doctor on the scene who showed us the x-rays and everything else that had been taken after this woman had had her accident. He was certainly the most expert of all the witnesses who had come forward. His testimony bore greater weight. So when we sat in that room deliberating. We said, you know what? The cop thought she was good, but I really, what the doctor said, and when he showed those x-rays, I know this woman's just making this up because she wasn't really as hurt as bad as she said she was. And so here, God, the Father, calls a more expert witness to the stand. Verse 36 but the testimony that I have is greater. That means weightier. Weightier than that of John. And here's the second point. The Father himself witnessed to the validity of Jesus' claims in three ways. One, through the human ministry of John. And number two, through the divine miracles of Jesus. So the next witness called to the stand is the body of works, wonders, miracles that Jesus had done up to this point. These bore witness that he was truly God, verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing. Now remember, when's this happening? It's happening right after he's just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. So the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is undoubtedly referring to the miracles of Jesus. When John uses this word works, he's almost always referring to the miraculous signs that Jesus performed. That's what he's talking about here. And Jesus has just done, as I said, one of these miraculous signs showing who he was, who he claimed to be. With one word, he heals a man who's been a cripple for 38 years. 
The works of Jesus were works that only God could do. There was no doubting it. Even the Pharisees knew that what Jesus was doing were things, were, were works that only God had the power to do. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 2. and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless what? God is with him. And never once, never once in any of the Gospels did the Pharisees claim that Jesus' miracles were fake. Never one did they claim that he was a fraud, that he was just making these things up, or that he was just doing tricks. Never once did they try to disprove the miracles. What they did was try to say that he was doing them through Satan's power, right? Mark 3, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And then in John chapter 11, when Jesus uh, raises up Lazarus, who's been dead for four days, they didn't try to claim it didn't happen. It was undeniable. What did these Jewish leaders do? They plotted to kill Lazarus in order to get rid of the irrefutable evidence that indeed Jesus was doing what only God could do. They didn't doubt the evidence. They wanted to get rid of the evidence. The miracles that Jesus performed were the power of God on display. They were immediate, they were complete, they were undeniable. The type of miracles Jesus did during his earthly ministry and the miracles he continued to do exclusively, exclusively through the apostles as the gospel went forth was a work of God that cannot be replicated. Regardless of what you believe about whether or not the miraculous gifts have ceased, which is a raging debate today, especially after John MacArthur's historic Strange Fire Conference. But regardless of where you fall on that debate, you must recognize that those miracles performed by Christ and continued through the Holy Spirit among the apostles were unique manifestations of God's power meant as a sign to confirm the person and message of Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart. The supposed miracles of our day are usually our just a sideshow. They're never confirmed. They can't be because they're not immediate, complete, and undeniable like those of Jesus. And they're almost always divorced from the preaching of the gospel, which in and of itself proves that they're false. If you're searching through the TV and you find some dude healing people and you don't hear the gospel, those are false signs and wonders. Because the signs and wonders are meant to point to the word. Don't Buy into it. Run from it. Paul points out in 2 Thessalonians 2 regarding the days before Christ's return. He says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God, listen to this, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. I believe God has sent the church in America a strong delusion to weed out the true believers from the false believers. And there are many who are believing in the false signs and wonders and going after it with all gusto, and the gospel is not heard or preached. Satan cannot do true works of God. He cannot do true miracles because he's not God. But he can do a lot of tricks meant to deceive 
and meant to lead people away from the gospel. Jesus' miracles were works, as Jesus said, that the Father has given me to accomplish. Meaning, again, he was doing the work of God. Distinct, yet co-equal to the Father. God-given works meant to demonstrate who he claimed to be. John 20, 30 tells us that that's the whole purpose of these signs. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not even written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So these signs, these miracles, are a testimony to us too. Today, if you claim to be a Christian, yet you try to explain away the miracles of Scripture, you are simply not believing the witness. You are simply not believing the witness that God has put forth. You are discrediting the witness of God. So those who try to explain away, well, Jesus didn't really walk on water. There must have been a sandbar there. That's what I believe. You are saying, I don't believe the witness that God has placed on the stand. Jesus' miracles were meant to be signs to point to his divinity. And that by believing in him, we might have life. But as we remember from our studies so far, it's very possible for men to see miracles of God and still miss the message. It was very possible for people to to desire the wonders while ignoring the word. That's what the bulk of those around Jesus did. So there was yet another witness. And that's our third point today. The Father himself has witnessed to the validity of Jesus' claims, first of all, through the human ministry of John. Secondly, through the divine miracles of Jesus. And finally, number three, through the inspired message of the scriptures. The inspired message of the scriptures. You may be wondering why we sang the songs we sang today. Why I chose the scripture verses that I chose today. Because I was pointing us toward this third and very, most important point of this passage. The final and most powerful witness called to the stand is the word of God. The Bible. And as we've said so many times, all of scripture points to Christ. It's all witness to Christ. Verse 37. <clears throat> and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now I want you to catch the connection here with these different words. His voice, okay, God's voice, you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word, there's the second one, his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. There's the third word. Voice, word, scriptures. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The voice of God, the word that abides, and the holy scriptures. The Father himself has borne witness because he has spoken. He has spoken about the Son. Jesus says, his voice you have never heard, meaning that these people who he's talking to here were not witnesses to the Father speaking audibly from heaven at Jesus' baptism. They were not. You remember as we studied Jesus' baptism, God the Father spoke from heaven and said this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And two more times in Jesus' life, we will see that the Father speaks audibly from heaven, declaring that Jesus is the Son. But these people had not heard that audible voice of God, nor had they seen God's form. 
But that did not excuse them. For God had spoken to them. Even though they didn't hear his audible voice, God had spoken to them. He had spoken to them through his word. Matter of fact, the word of God given to us in the scriptures, friends. Let me say this as clearly as I can. The word of God spoken to us in the scriptures, friends, is more of a witness than even an audible voice. Sometimes you'll hear people say, if I could just hear God tell me this. I hear Christians say that when they're, they're seeking guidance in something. They'll say, if, if God would just speak to me, tell me. And I always want to say, God has spoken to you. You don't need to hear a voice. It's right here. Or you'll hear a, maybe a skeptic say, well, I'll believe if God, will just, if God will just speak to me in an audible voice, I'll believe. No, you won't. You don't believe what he's already said. Even if he does speak you in an audible voice, you won't believe. Now, don't take my word for it. Never take my word for it. Let's go to the Scriptures. 2 Peter 1, 16. This is Peter talking about his own eyewitness of Christ and the witness of the Scriptures. He says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So that's obviously referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, where God, one of the three times where God speaks audibly from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So Peter is referring to that event. He's saying we were eyewitnesses to it. We heard the voice. Look at what he says in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word, it's referring to the scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying, listen, I heard an audible voice, but you have something more sure. You have the word of God. You don't need an audible voice. God has already spoken clearly, loudly in 66 books. And every bit of it is about Jesus. People who demand to hear an audible voice I don't know, I almost think it'd be like you getting a, a letter from the president with the presidential seal. It's delivered to you by the Secret Service, brought to you in a special envelope. You know, one of these things that said this thing will just self-destruct after you read the letter. I don't know. You get this presidential invitation with the presidential seal and everything else, and you say, well, I demand the president to come and speak to me right here. I'm not going to believe it. It's worse than that. <laughs> Much worse. The people refuse to believe this word that God has given. <clears throat> now remember, Jesus is speaking to Jewish leaders, which included scribes and Pharisees and perhaps even some priests. So they were proficient in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't know the Father or the Son. Verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 
So just as they had never heard God's audible voice, they didn't hear God's voice in the scriptures either. And just as they had never seen God's physical form, they didn't see God in the scriptures either. For they were stubborn, they were proud, they were rebellious, and they refused to hear the clear testimony of God regarding his son. They had mastered the scriptures when what they needed was to be mastered by the scriptures. Today there are many in our world who are the same way we come at the Bible as a book to be mastered instead of as a book to master us. I think that's the temptation every preacher faces. He sits down and he studies and he wants to master the text instead of sitting down humbly and saying, God, crush me with your text. Master me first before I even attempt to master this word. No doubt these Jews revered the scripture. But they hadn't really read the scripture. I mean really read the scripture to understand what it was talking about. In our evangelical circles, in our Baptist culture, we say we revere this book. Baptists are proud to say, oh, we're people of the Bible. We revere this book. But I'm astounded by how many biblically illiterate people there are who say they revere this book. Blows me away. Many, if not most, in our churches revere the scriptures yet don't really read it. Many revere the scriptures but refuse to believe it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, well, I know the Bible says this, but followed up by whatever they want to do. And how many in our churches today actually believe, actually believe and are taught that all the Bible, all of it points to Jesus? All of it is about him. He's the main character. I dare say that many who say they revere this book don't know that or don't believe that. Many who supposedly revere this book revere it as if it was a book of wisdom full of fanciful tales that will help them live in a more moral way. They go through life with 66 books that can teach them limitless truths about the Savior, the Savior of the world that go through their lives with that book sitting on their shelves gathering dust because they have no idea what this book is really about. It's not about making you a better moral person. It's actually showing you how immoral of a person you are so you'll turn to the only one that this book is speaking about, which is Jesus Christ. It is they, Jesus says, that bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, if you really believe this book, if you really, really search out the scriptures, you'd find me. They searched the scriptures, but they were searching for the wrong things. They thought they could search the scriptures to find many ways that they could obey God and make themselves right with God and earn eternal life. But they failed to see that the law was a mirror to show them how far short they fell of the glory of God and how the wages of sin was death. And in seeing that, they were to turn to the gift of God, which was eternal life through Christ, who is Jesus our Lord and our God. They failed to search the scriptures like the Old Testament prophets and saints. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They should have been like their Jewish brothers in Berea, who later on in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, To see if these things were so. That's how they should have searched God's word. To see if Jesus was indeed who he was claiming to be. 
And in doing so, they would have seen who he was and they would have had true life. That's how they should have approached God's word. And that's what Jesus showed the, his two disciples on the way to Emmaus, Luke 24, 27. I know we quote this verse all the time, but it's worth quoting all the time. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scriptures. That's how people should come to the scriptures today, too, to find Jesus. The scriptures are the ultimate proof. That's why our Baptist battle for the Bible that many of you probably aren't even aware of in the late 70s, a battle for a belief in the inerrancy of scripture, that's why it was a battle worth fighting. The whole Bible is wholly true, and it's wholly about Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 15, this passage, great passage we read earlier. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, what? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The only sacred writings that Timothy had available to him was the Old Testament. Every bit of the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. It was able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If we don't see Jesus in this book and we don't believe in Jesus based solely on this book, then nothing else will convince us. You remember the parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 16? This is why signs and wonders aren't sufficient. And this is why human testimony isn't sufficient. Are they helpful? Yes. But they're not sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. Luke chapter 16. Let me set it up. If you know the passage, this this is the parable Jesus is telling of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived lavishly all of his life he died and, and Lazarus was a poor man sitting outside the gate and had sores all over him he wanted the do- dogs to come and lick his sores that's pretty nasty and he dies but Lazarus was a man of faith obviously he goes to heaven and the rich man goes to hell and we read this Luke 16 verse 27 this is the rich man speaking and he's speaking to Abraham he says then I beg you father to send him to my father's house he's asking for Lazarus to be risen from the grave and sent to his father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. If you don't believe that hell is a place of eternal torment, then you don't believe Jesus' words. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses, listen to this. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said to them, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they don't believe this, even a wonder as great as someone rising from the dead isn't sufficient to convince them. Our sufficiency is scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. This book right here is the ultimate witness. Therefore, the preaching of the word is central to any activity the church is involved in. Any activity we should do should involve the preaching of the word, the sharing of the word, the distribution of the word. I, Heather and I had the privilege to be able to go and give a really short little four-minute speech at Bethany Christian Services fundraising event. And I'm always nervous when I go to some of these kind of events because I don't know. I know there's a lot of Christians that get involved in social ministry, which is what Bethany is. It's adoption, foster care, safe families. 
There's a lot of Christians that get involved in social ministry to make themselves feel better about themselves and have nothing to do with the Word. But I was so excited when I was there to hear the Word of God spoken from so, all the speakers. Sonny Perdue was there, and he gave a fantastic gospel presentation. I was just, I was loving it. I said, like, can you run for governor again, sir? It was awesome to hear this, this beautiful gospel presentation and all the speakers talking about the gospel. And I thought, yes, because it's not just about social activity to alleviate the ills of our world. That is good. But my friends, if it's, if it's a church activity, it involves the proclamation of the gospel along with those activities. If it's those activities alone, and I think, I think this is the temptation. A lot of people think if we just get involved in social activities, we can convince people to love Jesus. No, you can't. You can adopt 100 kids from Ethiopia and you will never convince your neighbor to believe in Jesus if they don't hear this. Now, I'm not saying it might not open their heart. God might use that to give an opportunity, but you still got to preach the word, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. The means God has ordained to save, the means God has ordained to bring dead hearts alive, to make blind eyes see, to make deaf ears hear, to give new life, is bound up in his life-giving word. This book right here, 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through, here's the means, through the living and abiding word of God. That's the means that God used. If you're a believer, and if you're a genuine believer here this morning, you are a believer because you heard the word of God. You heard the gospel. And that's what these Jews lacked. They lacked seeing the word in this first Peter passage. It says that you're born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. These men were experts in the law, but the word of God did not abide in them. Verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The word didn't abide in them. Evidenced by the fact that they didn't believe. They had no faith. Now let's camp out here a bit on this word abide. What does it mean? Jesus tells his disciples later in chapter 15 of John. That famous passage about abiding in the vine. And the vine of course is Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Now, I think many reduce the concept of God's word abiding in us to memorization. Oh, that means I just need to memorize scripture and thereby I'll have God's word hidden in my heart and it's abiding in me. Well, certainly it's, in tr it's true that we need to memorize God's word, but it has to mean more than that. It has to. Why do I say that? Because these Jews had the scriptures memorized. I mean, any good Jew, especially a Jewish leader, would have had the Old Testament memorized. Most certainly the first five books, but probably more than that. They just had access to it in their minds. But they weren't abiding. The Word of God wasn't abiding in them. So this has to mean more than just memorization. So what does this word abide mean? Well, in the Greek, just as, as in the English... Okay, the word itself, abide, means to dwell or to lodge or to take up residence in, to be at home in. In the English, obviously, it's related to the word abode. This is my humble abode. So Jesus is saying that his word finds no home in their hard hearts. 
John 8, 37, I think, sheds light on this for us. Jesus, again, is speaking. He's having a confrontation with the, the Pharisees or in the Jewish leaders again. And he says this, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. My word finds no place in you. It finds no home. It finds no residence. It finds no permanent dwelling. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says his father's word does not abide in them. They knew it intellectually, but it found no home in their hearts because they had hard hearts. That It was either swept away immediately by Satan or it couldn't endure the hardships that would come if you truly believed in the Messiah, or was choked up by the cares of this world, but it found no root, it found no soil, it found no home in their hearts. As evidenced by the fact that they didn't believe. Oh, how I'm afraid that the church pews are filled with such people in our day that know some scripture, they know some scriptural lingo, But the word, the message of the gospel spoken from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 finds no home in their hearts, for they do not believe. They intellectually are Christians with minds that can assent to certain scriptural propositions, but spiritually they are dead with hearts that do not believe in the word as evidenced by wordless living. Because if the word finds no home in our hearts, Well, we're going to live like the world. Friends, we act, we speak, we live out of the overflow of what's in our hearts. Those who live lives seemingly divorced from God's word are those in whose heart God's word has found no place to reside. Show me a man who lives like the world and I will show you a man in whom there is no home for the word. Show me a man who lives like the world. I will show you a man in whose heart there is no home for the word. I do not believe that there's such a thing as carnal Christianity. There is lostness. And there is salvation. And those who are saved have the word of God abiding in their heart. And it's evidenced by the way they live. Out of the overflow of the heart comes their words, their actions. Now, friends, there's much more to say about the testimony of God's word and about the unbelief of the Jews. I really wanted the sermon to keep going from this point forward. And I realized preparing it that I had to stop right here, especially since we're doing the Lord's Supper today. So next week, I'm going to pick it up right here, verse 41 through verse 47. We'll see Jesus pronounce seven condemnations against them for their unbelief. And we'll continue to see how they rejected the word of God. So I'll pick it up right here, verse 41 through 47, next week. But for now, let us just see that the testimony has been given. Witnesses have been called forth. There is proof. What a testimony we have that has been given. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, was asked by someone, if you turn out to be wrong and you get to heaven, or you get get to the afterlife, not to heaven, uh, if you turn out to be wrong, you get to the afterlife, and, and God asks you why you didn't believe, what would you say to him? Richard Dawkins' answer was, not enough evidence. Poor Richard Dawkins is sadly mistaken. There is plenty of evidence. He just refuses to believe what God has clearly communicated and clearly demonstrated. 
This is how the Father has chosen to testify to the validity of His Son. Through the forerunning prophetic word of John the Baptist, through the miraculous signs of Jesus, and through the life-giving inspired scriptures. So this audacious claim that Jesus makes is not without foundation, unlike the audacious claim of those conspiracy theorists who think that JFK was killed in some sort of weird way. Jesus' claims are backed up by evidence. By truth. These scriptures, friends, are proof that Jesus is who he says he is. These scriptures, friend, were given to show you that you are a sinner and that you are in need of this Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of Man. Jesus, the God-man, co-equal with the Father. Sent by his Father to do the works of the Father and to bear the sins of his people. And give them eternal life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we pray. We're going to pray and we're going to immediately go into the Lord's Supper. It's going to be our response time. And then we'll sing a song after the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it does not return void. I thank you, Lord, that um, it never fails. I thank you that it remains forever. I thank you, Lord, that it testifies to Jesus, every bit of it, Moses and the prophets and the writings. It's all about Jesus. So I thank you, Jesus, that we, Father, I thank you that we have this book, 66 smaller books that teach us about Jesus. Oh, Father, forgive us for neglecting this book. Oh, how we need to hunger for it more and more, yet we don't. So Spirit, I ask that you stir up our hunger for your word. Stir up our desire for Jesus. And if our desire is really stirred up for Jesus, then I believe, Lord, I believe that that, will not just, that won't lead us to just emotions and, and trying to experience Jesus through, through any other means than the scriptures. If our taste buds are truly tuned to the Son, then we will go to the word Father, I believe that with all my heart, and I pray that for our church. And I pray now over our Lord's Supper of our communion time, Lord, that you might be glorified in this expression, this symbolic expression of what Jesus accomplished and what the whole scriptures speak about. And that is that he came to be a ransom, to shed his blood, to ransom his people, to give us his righteousness, that we might be with you, Father, that we might be united to the Son and become co-heirs. That Jesus would function as our older brother, bringing us into the family. I pray now that you be with this closing time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.